0: Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith. And on this episode, I'm joined by David Morley. He's the president and CEO of UNICEF Canada. Now, with millions of kids around the world still out of school and with vaccine efforts central to our global response and recovery, UNICEF has a really interesting and unique role to play. For his part, David has long been dedicated to human rights, sustainable development, and issues of global justice, particularly for kids. He's been in his role at UNICEF for almost a decade now. Before that, he was the head of Doctors Without Borders Canada and Save the Children Canada, among other roles. And he's taught global affairs at U of T. And a little-known Canadian trivia, he is also the inspiration for Stuart McLean's characters, David and Morley. David, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks very much. In an op-ed in December of 2019, you wrote... We are entering the final year of what has been one of the worst decades for children. You referenced the fact that 59 million children in 64 countries were living in crisis zones, the highest levels since we began keeping records. How much worse has the situation gotten because of the pandemic?
1: It's got stunningly worse. I guess the one good thing amongst all the things of the pandemic is that children themselves are not medically affected as much right we know that we've seen it they're not necessarily vectors for the disease they're they're not as badly affected but the impact on children around the world has been phenomenal phenomenally bad like At one point, we were at one and a half billion children were not in school when all the shutdowns were going on a couple of months ago. And it still hasn't come back to what it was. We have seen the immunization rates have dropped. You know, they were at about 80% of, of the world's kids were getting immunized. It's down to 65%. Wow. Just in that time. We're seeing things fall back for kids for the first time since we began keeping records of child mortality, which was in 1960, so it's 60 years ago, for the first time in 60 years, we're going to see child mortality go up. More kids are going to die from preventable causes this year than they did last year, after, after 60 years of it getting better and better. And they're not dying because they have COVID, they're dying from, these fallouts and all the other impacts of the pandemic.
0: The economic impacts, the education impacts.
1: And education, health. And when societies have have shut down, you know, here in Canada, we've seen some of those, those impacts. But think of a country that doesn't have all the resources that we do, that isn't able to do All you know, putting in the employment supports that we've been able to put in as a society. If the money you make is going to buy in the morning, is going to buy the food for you and your family in the afternoon, and then you can't go and work because everything is shut down, you're a day laborer, the impacts are, are incredible. We've seen in some countries, poorer countries of the world, health systems have just stopped functioning because the health providers. We're fearful, naturally enough, of getting COVID. There was not enough PPE. Um, the school systems have shut down because same thing, uh, and, and, and lockdowns are put there. And, and I think it's hard for us to imagine sometimes the lack of resources. I just um, I was in a meeting this morning, and, and we were talking about different countries. And the government of Sierra Leone, one of the world's poorest countries, they've been able to get some hand sanitizer fairly recently. And they're going, well, how should we use that in our schools? If if many of our schools don't have latrines, don't have running water, what's the best place to put the hand sanitizer? Is it to give a little bit to every child or is it to put it out front so the kids can use it? There's so few <laughs> resources in the poorest parts of the world that this little bit of step back in economic activity is having this stunning, stunning effect.
0: And we have seen some knock-on negative consequences. We can think of the opioid crisis as an example here in Canada, which has obviously been exacerbated by isolation efforts. But when you start from a position of such vulnerability and you layer on not only COVID, but all of the knock-on consequences, it gets so much worse on on, on such a significant scale.
1: And we see it, you know, it's in mental health as well. You know, we classify the world. There's there's low-income countries, middle-income countries. In middle-income countries, like, say, Tunisia is one. In the first two weeks after the lockdown, Tunisia has a child distress hotline that you can call up for mental health support and stuff. The number of calls to that hotline went up five times by five-fold because kids were... Was it domestic violence? Is it fear? Is it all of those pressures that we know we know is happening here? But it's in middle income countries, it's happening around the world. That that mental health and then the mental health issues and for young people and we don't know where it's gonna lead.
0: And how is UNICEF taking all of its experience and responding to the current challenges?
1: Well, there's a couple of main things that we're doing. I mentioned immunization is, I think, is, is the first thing that we're doing. Last year, we vaccinated almost half of the world's children. We're the biggest procurers of vaccines in the world. We used to provide more than half, but now the government of India does it themselves, So that which is great. So now we're down to, to almost half. So We are involved in every step of the way of this COVAX facility, the effort that's of the countries of the world coming together to work to try and find a vaccine, and Canada is part of that. But it's a way to try and ensure that everybody will have access to the vaccine. And here it's not necessarily vaccinating children, it's vaccinating older people, perhaps. But it's the vaccines don't just get gobbled up, by the rich countries first, but that there is some sense of equality that, in fact, it's not just the rich that get it first, it's the people who need it most get it first. And it'll never be perfect. But, but it's, you know, that's what we're we're working towards. So because the governments of the world, including ours, know that you can't do a vaccination program that's going to have to be global without UNICEF. I, I don't mean to sound arrogant. I'm not the one who does it, but we have people in our organization who've been doing this for generations. And and so uh, we're very, very much involved in that to try and get that vaccination happening. That's the first thing. The second thing we're doing is around education, because health and education are the two main things that we do. And, and so we're advocating as much as possible with governments around the world particularly in sub-saharan africa to open your schools up because the lockdown of schools if you can find a way to do it open them up because what we know we know is that when kids leave school even for a few months the way it's been now the dropout rate is going to go up a lot and it's going to likely be it's going to be girls more than boys it's you know we 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 still have it's not as bad as it was you know back in the back in our spring but it's still 600 million kids who aren't in school and and we had been at a point again with of stat good stats we were at the highest percentage of kids in school ever in in human history and educa- last year well 2 years ago then some of the conflicts that have got were getting worse, like Yemen and Syria, were, were, were hurting children, and now this with the shutdown, it makes it so much harder for children. So we're also helping children, uh, helping schools as much as possible. I mentioned Sierra Leone, but how do you how do you provide safe as safe as possible hand washing stations, latrines, hand sanitizer if you get it. But soap. It's just getting soap out. And and in the UN system and, and really for and with NGOs too, our our water and sanitation programs are really key in in many countries around the world because we work in every country in the world. So putting that into effect is going to be really important so that kids can go back to school.
0: And on the vaccination effort, I know Canada has contributed hundreds of millions of dollars and actively yes. involved in, in the global COVAX effort. Where are those efforts at and are they sufficient yet? Have enough countries like Canada signed on and, and supported? Do we here need to do more? What more needs to happen to deliver for the world?
1: Well, getting the vaccine made, right, is going to be a big part of it. And so investing in that scientific, then it's going to be the distribution infrastructure. The government of Canada absolutely has, has helped and I think stepped up and be a, be a leader. I think that this effort can always use more money and you know investing in in canadian research so it can be a way to help help in canada as well is is very important but i think advocating with others who might do more be it with the united states who who have not maybe maybe after november <laughs> yeah maybe that they have have the capacity and 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 they support unicef in a lot of ways but we need more in this in this emergency time, right? We are learning, I think, that what happens far away in a city that, in China that many of us have never heard of, even though it's bigger than any city in Canada, and now look what's happened, look what's grown from there because of air travel, because of the way the world works. I think we all are realizing that we aren't safe, you and me and people and our families until everybody's safe.
0: And I hope people realize when it comes to a security conversation that looking after others around the world is part of our own domestic security. And and we can't be, you know, tough on crime and, and tough with public safety if we're serious about public safety, because real public safety means investing in health measures and education measures around the world to make sure that in the long term, we are more safe here at home.
1: Absolutely. And maybe, just maybe, this, the pandemic will start to create more of a sense of, of solidarity, Because one of the things I think back to the to the HIV AIDS pandemic when it was at its worst in Africa, you know, and when I remember Stephen Lewis was going around the world, raising awareness about the pandemic and what was happening in Africa. And I think there are many people like me who suddenly was going, oh, yeah, I've lost friends in the HIV AIDS pandemic here in Canada. And so I don't want that to be happening the way it's happening in Africa now. There was a solidarity, right? i have lived something that, that made a different kind of solidarity. What I hope, and I've seen a bit of it coming for us as Canadians, you know, when we talk about, whoa, a school doesn't have water and isn't going to hand wash, at the same time, we think of our own solidarity because we're going, we're hand washing all the time now. We've been told to do it all the time. It's a reminder that we're all in it together because sometimes When we talk about international development, the things that are so important, we can't imagine what it's like to have all our children born malnourished or all these things, they seem too far away. But yeah, maybe we can imagine what it's like if you can't do your hand washing.
0: And the school conversation is a perfect example of that because there was certainly great panic among parents here in the East End of Toronto and I think across Ontario worried about class sizes, worried about are worried about ventilation in schools, worried that the government was not putting into place all of the measures that public health experts and pediatricians were recommending. And then you look around the world and it's so much worse, obviously. And many people have spoken about building back better, but UNICEF was part of a recent report, building back equal, focused on girls' education specifically, but focused on restoring education, getting people back into schools safely as much as possible, a series of recommendations. Having gone through that report a little bit, my main question was, how can Canada best help? Is is it funding fundamentally to ensure that schools in countries around the world can safely reopen and can take some of the measures, at least, that we've been able to take here at home?
1: yeah it is funding we have we have expertise that can help and actually you know some of our actually with unicef our global head of of education is from ontario you know we have a lot of expertise that works with agencies like us but the main thing is is funding cuz that's what's needed it's funding to put in the water systems it's funding to put in the teacher training systems it's it's more sometimes than just a building it's how do you modernize, how, do, how how can the teachers really reach out and how do you be sure things can be secure? It's interesting, you know, that we've been wrestling with, but online learning, and this has sparked a movement and an interest in some governments in, in sub-Saharan Africa, mostly about how can they get more schools online? And it doesn't mean in the end that everything's going to be distance learning, but if a rural school i've seen this effort done in a very small scale in uganda if it can get access to the internet oh my goodness that opens up the 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 good side of the internet right that you the education the learning that people can can have but also at the same time we we have ministries of education in in rwanda this is happening are coming to us and saying we want to modernize our teacher education because the three r s and and rote learning is not what we need in the twenty first century. It's how do you work creatively? How do you work together? So that will become more equal. You know, as school systems are modernized, education is absolutely a key to helping governments improve. and that I mean, countries improve and and in villages and and towns. It's so important to have well-educated citizens who are healthy. You can do so
0: much. And the G7 in Charlevoix came together and made an important statement on girls' education, on girls' education specifically saying, we the leaders of the G7 recognize that gender equality is fundamental for the fulfillment of human rights. And now you describe hundreds of millions of students out of school, many that may never go back, many more girls not going back to school. And have we, out of that G7 announcement, have we seen funding to match the the grandiosity of the announcement in some way? Have we seen, especially in the wake of the Building Back Equal report and this necessary conversation about girls' education and restoring safe schools in the wake of COVID, have we seen the G7 step up on education?
1: Not as much as we'd like, and there's lobbying going on right now to have them continue you know the the from Charlevoix and the the declaration that Canada that Canada did and and put in money put in a lot of money and and have been trying to do their best to make sure that particularly girls education for countries in crisis because those are the times when girls get out of girls drop out if it's a refugee child the chance of having early forced marriage the chance then of having kids at a younger age all of those difficult things that that will happen it goes up so i think canada has done a good job and after covid hit some of our international aid is continuing to go we've got to focus on girls education because we see that falling falling behind the question i I think then becomes is how big are your coattails our coattails i don't mean you i mean us as as a a nation sure because it is us it is us it's an expression of, of what we want for the world and then the next year france followed up not with as much money but they still they're put they're they're continuing to keep a focus there this coming year we're looking for some stuff from from britain to see what they will do as well so we're trying to continue with that and we i don't only mean uh, what you and your colleagues and 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 the public servants are doing what organizations like us as unicef and and ngos are doing as well to keep this on the agenda because it's too easy to let girls' education drop off the global ad- agenda because they're often back equal. They're often second-class citizens in their own families. And then their children, so they don't vote. And they or if you're in a democracy or, or if you're in a ar- place of armed conflict, they don't care. People don't care, right? So we have to keep pushing that. And because it will make the world better, it'll make the world safer if we can really do it.
0: And it does seem an area where the prime minister, this government, have leaned in in a serious way. The statement yeah. out of the G7 significant, but it also seems, especially having read the Building Back Equal report and recognizing the scale of crisis that COVID has brought to bear on education and girls' education, that we almost need to just double down on our efforts yeah. even further, and and that more is required going forward.
1: Can I tell you a little story? Yes. This is pre-COVID. I was in South Sudan. A couple of years ago there's been a long a civil war going on there and the town was destroyed and it was a town of about 30 40 people and like the marketplace had been burned down it only had a couple of buildings concrete buildings and one was the school and the war had settled down so at unicef we we're trying to figure out how do we help the school rebuild and i met some students and this girl she just stays in my mind her name was grace she was 13 years old she was from that town. She'd had to escape across the Nile River when, when it's on the edge of the Nile. When one force came in, like, could she be safe in her own home? Did she have to be running away? She came back. It still wasn't 100% safe, but it was pretty safe. And we're sitting in the school playground and the walls, these yellow walls of the school are all, they're just pockmarked with bullet holes from where the fighting had been. And I said to her, what, what are you doing here? Because it's not safe for you. She was living with her grandmother in the town. And she said, I've got my grade eight exams coming up because we'd helped restore some of the national system. The grade eight exams are coming up and I have to get an education because education brings peace. And yeah, what could I say? She's right. She's right. She's right. And her strength and her commitment to want to finish her, you know, grade eight, so she could get into high school despite of the fact that there was a conflict going on. It's a couple of years now. I I don't know if her high school is open or not, but when I think of determination of girls and what they can do and why we have to help, I just, I always go back to grace in my mind.
0: And there are so many barriers. We mentioned the COVID crisis as an obvious example, but, In the East End here, I have a large Bangladeshi community, and they've been very vocal about the need to support the Rohingya refugee efforts. And we have the largest refugee camps in the world and how you deliver education there. I mean, again, thousands, hundreds of thousands of of children who might lose out on the opportunity to get an education and then lose out on the opportunity to to have a the, you know the potential to succeed in life because of the situation in which they find themselves.
1: And in in those camps and you think of it in many places where I was there about a year year and a half ago I guess in the Rohingya camps in Bangladesh what are you going to do are you going to teach the Bangladeshi for example the Bangladeshi curriculum and in what language? Or is it the Myanmar Rohingya curriculum, which didn't actually exist? So that's not a good, but, but who, how, because are the people, have they come to stay forever? Because like that, those camps in three weeks, they went from a nature reserve with nobody to a city, the size of Winnipeg, like just like that. And so are they to stay? Or are they going to go back? You see it a lot in Turkey with Syrian refugees who come into Turkey and are they going to learn in Turkish? or are they going to learn in Arabic because it's different? And then how does the school system support it for the situation for refugee girls, children in general, of course, but for the girls, it's so, so hard. And we do, you know, we can do it right? where we we can help. We can't solve everything. But my goodness, I often feel when I'm when I'm in other parts of the world, you know, and I meet these local, leaders and the kids themselves or their parents or the teachers and nurses. And I just think, wow, what a, what personally, what a privilege for me to get to be able to work with these guys. And, and it's a reminder, you know, bad news travels fast, but my goodness me, there's way more people who are doing good than are trying to mess things up.
0: It's a good reminder, too, about just our capacity to deliver support through education. I have often thought, and this is the lawyer in me, you know, I should should think through the lens of my parents, the teachers, but the lawyer in me, I've often thought we have great capacity to help support the rule of law in other countries we have great judicial capacity in this country to do training elsewhere we are very good at elections and respected around the world with respect to our electoral capacity and we could be training election commissions and and other other institutions around the world not only to monitor elections on the ground but also to build capacity in institutions to deliver on fair elections in other countries on a going forward basis but we also have a similar and maybe greater capacity when it comes to education to support other countries around the world on that front. And I haven't, it being a provincial responsibility and delivering education, I haven't thought through the same, in the same way federally, but, but I should think, I should think through that problem.
1: Yeah. You know, we do part of the work of UNICEF because we're kind of the world's data source for children because we're the UN agency for children. I I mean, we're, we're both, uh. At UNICEF Canada, we're a Canadian charity, but where we represent this UN agency. And so we're the world's repository for data on children. So we do comparisons between rich countries. And the one place where Canada has done really well is education, is our public education system. So, you know, your parents are teachers, my my wife was a teacher, my son is a teacher. So I think we underestimate sometimes how good our public education and how how we got to preserve it. But it is in the international rankings, people will complain we're not good enough at math. But in general, we do a pretty good job on, on education. And there is more we could export probably.
0: On other metrics, we, we don't fare so well. And you do a lot of work, obviously, in other countries around the world. I'm sure you have endless stories in the course of your travels, not only with UNICEF, but with Doctors Without Borders and Save the Children and more. But you also, in your role through UNICEF Canada, you do comparisons that, that measure Canada's success in delivering for children as against other high-income countries. And I've read horrible numbers that we come in 30 out of 38, and this isn't uh, an anomaly in one year. This is oh, steadily over the years, we fared very poorly in comparison to other like high-income countries. What are we failing at? What, why, why is that?
1: Well, I think a couple of things. One is longer view of things. Like we used to be much better in the '80s. We were up there with the Nordic countries, and I think we stopped investing as much, or we we took our eye off the ball. And we see that that we don't invest enough. And it's not only that, you know at the federal level. And then and and I often I hesitate to bring up because oh is this federal provincial, but. I just put that aside. I don't have to think about whose jurisdiction. What I see is that the countries that do best for their children, the the high-income countries, invest about 3% of their GDP, of their gross domestic product, in child and family services. About about 3%. The average for wealthy countries is about 2.3%. We're spending less than 2% on children on those services. But what those other countries do, there's three things that we see make a big difference. One is quality childcare, early learning. I know it was just mentioned in the speech from the throne and immediately people started talking federal provincial, but that makes such a difference. Good early interventions and childcare. And along with that is improved parental leave. How do we, you know, giving, 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 people like you with little kids more time to be at home with with when your children are born and then there's it's enough income support to to bring down the rate of child poverty we believe you know we, when we're looking at our comp- comparable data some of the canada child tax benefit had not because we're comparing with all these kind like we hadn't seen the full full impact of it we certainly think that as we start to see, and hopefully that if that were to go up, the the Canada Child Tax Benefit, that'll make a difference because it's going to reduce poverty um, for, amongst those kids and it'll make the, better. But that's it. It's just poverty reduction. Give the poorest parents a bit more money, put in childcare and early learning and give more parental leave. Those are three things that'll make a big difference but what we see that other countries are doing they have national commissioners or commissions for children when when you're in parliament and you got to be debating a law there's a public servant whose job is to keep an eye on what's the impact on kids unintended consequence or other or you can have a child rights impact assessment is a thing that you do it's kind of like an environmental impact assessment but you just go okay, you know, some of these things that are having to be passed in a hurry right now, you know, there's always unintended consequences, but let's make sure how, what's the impact of that on on children and children's rights. Those are things, you know, we're signatories to the Convention on the Rights of the Child, and those are ways that we can help to fulfill our obligation with the Convention. And one other that I think is worthwhile, that we see some countries starting to do and talking about seriously that could make a difference is lowering the voting age to 16. You know, you can drive a car at 16, but they're not allowed to vote for you or anybody. (laughs) But there's nothing magic about 18. When I was little, the voting age was 21. And a couple of generations ago, it would only be you and me. You know, no women, no woman could vote. There's nothing sacrosanct about 18. And and sometimes those 16 and 17 year old kids, that, Canadian kids that we, we work with, they're very thoughtful and they've got really good ideas. And the impact of the decisions that we make today is going to have a much bigger impact on their lives than it's going to on my life, just because they're younger. So those are some of the things that we see other successful countries doing
0: pre-pandemic I would go into high school's quite often and talk about why politics matters and I completely agree I've had more thoughtful conversations in high schools than in many other settings and obviously the evidence is overwhelming that greater child care supports for especially disadvantaged families has a huge return on social mobility a huge return on on children's success and We've lifted 300,000 kids out of poverty in a significant way because of the can-child benefit, but I always remind other liberal colleagues, there are still hundreds of thousands of kids in poverty. And so, yes, let's use this opportunity to point to the success of the can-child benefit, but let's also use the same opportunity to say, and let's double down on our efforts to make sure we eliminate child poverty entirely. Because not only from a social justice perspective, but here's an issue where there are also very obvious returns to our society in whether it is savings in health, savings in criminal justice, savings in social services. If we invest early, there are great returns. And so from whether you care about the fiscal return on your public dollar or the social return on your public dollar, investing in young kids and reducing child poverty, there are significant returns to both.
1: Absolutely. It's such a great investment. We know that it makes a profound difference in the lives of that individual child, that family, but for our society as a whole. And I hope you're successful in convincing your colleagues to double down on the on the child tax benefit because that I have a lot of hope in that because sometimes we talk around issues, but just having some more money that's going to help some of the most disadvantaged people, putting some money in their pockets makes a big difference. We see it, you know. In, in, in dire situations, that's, that's one of our strategies, working in refugee camps. It's just
0: giving money to, to
1: moms. It's great. They'll make the right choice for their kids and their families.
0: It's why I've been pushing for a, a basic income conversation among liberal colleagues. And I, I do think poverty reduction ought to be a much stronger focus across party lines and in our society and across governments. A challenging conversation in Canadian politics sometimes and I get correspondence occasionally on this, and I, and I got correspondence recently, worried about us sending money overseas. And You've been in this business for a very long time, traveling around the world, working for organizations that are dedicated to international development and supporting citizens of the world in, in need, not only in a high-income country like ours, but low-income countries around the world. And this is not a new conversation, this is not a new challenge. I'm sure you've heard up and down people raise the same concerns in different conversations. How do you respond to Canadians or or others who say how dare we spend taxpayer dollars for other people we got to look after our seniors first and we got to keep this money in the country and how dare we spend money on global Covax efforts? We've got to look after our own first. It's got to be it's got to be us first.
1: You know, they say charity begins at home and I guess it's how do you define your home is some of it. Is our home Canada? Is it our, you know, the east end of Toronto? Or is it the Earth? Is it the planet Earth? I sound sort of philosophically mushy, I guess, but I think it's the planet Earth, you know, and it's in our own self-interest, because, you know, there are some of the some of the, the poorest places on the in our hemisphere are closer to the east end of Toronto, and I'm thinking of Haiti and places like El Salvador, but then, then Vancouver is. And yet we say, oh no, Vancouver! you know, BC is part of us, and those places are different. I know why we do it, and I'm a proud Canadian, but we have to remember, I think, that the world is our home. And what what I think people want to be sure of is that is the money well spent is not wasted. You know, we always... Uh, and how much of people... We we don't spend as much on foreign aid as people think we do, but nevertheless, we do have to make sure that the money isn't wasted. We've got to make sure and that it's it 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 goes to help those who we want to help. And we have rules in Canada that Canada Revenue Agency puts on us. There's an organization called Imagine Canada that helps with make sure that Canadian charities that we follow the rules, and we've got to be able to follow the money <laughs> when somebody gives us ten dollars. You know, we've we so those safeguards are in place if if that's the concern is about money being diverted somewhere else. But but to me, yeah, charity begins at home. And it's how do we how do we define our home? And I think it's the world.
0: And you have spent your whole life in many respects dedicated to this idea that it's not just charity doesn't stop at at our borders and it is whether Doctors Without Borders, whether Institute for Canadian Citizenship, whether Save the Children and and now UNICEF Canada, you've spent a whole career dedicated to others. I have a friend from high school who works for UNICEF and she is incredibly passionate about helping others and and spending her life serving in pursuit of of supporting others and and helping the most vulnerable. how do you, I mean, what drove you to, to, I don't know, what drove you to dedicate your career to, to other people in, in this way?
1: I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be a history teacher. But I was at university. This so one summer in university, I um, was given the chance to volunteer working with street children in Central America. And I fell in love with those kids. It was a group of about 150 children. And I expected to find children who had been beaten down. They'd been on the streets. They'd been in orphanages like Charles Dickens would have written about. That had terrible, terrible times. And instead, I found a group of kids who were filled with life, who were spunky, who were really smart. And they're the dregs of society, but they knew how to make friends. They knew how to make society work for them as well as, as, as they could. And I was totally, totally captivated by those kids it's a long time ago now and thanks to the internet there's a group like a lot of those kids I'm in my early 60s so they're now in their early 50s some of them are grandparents right and so we talk <laughs> about our but we we have a Facebook group and so we talk about <laughs> our grandkids and stuff it's it's wonderful and but when I met those kids I thought I want to help these guys so I raised money for them for a while and I want to and despite what they can do i want to do my part to make sure that other children aren't forced into being pickpockets aren't forced into prostitution aren't, aren't aren't forced into early marriage It's what my heart told me i wanted to do and it turned into a career i had no idea it was going to turn into a
0: career well i i appreciate your time i also the comment of the of grace that edu- The connection between education and peace. I've been thinking recently, you read so many stories of conflicts around the world. You visited so many conflicts around the world. As politicians, and I include myself in this, I don't think we talk about peace enough anymore. Yeah, That's not part of the conversation anymore in the way that I think it, it used to be in Canadian politics. But we don't talk about peace anymore, and we probably should.
1: Yeah, I think we should and and there are those parts of the world where lots of proxy wars are still going on where children are still getting forced out of school and so we want to be able to support grace to help bring peace because then once you have peace in a country even if it's still unequal if whatever but then the positive development can start to happen. And it does. It does. You see it in countries time and time again. When there's not fighting, good things happen. Because we want to be good a good species, I think.
0: Well, thank you for your time, David. And thank you for everything you've done along the way. And I uh, make sure to tell your wife that my mom says hi.
1: Yeah, okay. Thanks very much. <laughs> thank
0: Remember to subscribe for future episodes at uncommons.ca. And please do leave a five-star review if you like what we're doing on your platform of choice.